Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The lesson this morning from the Hebrew Scripture is a strong dose of spiritual medicine, the kind of which we all need to take a megadose at least 6 to 12 times a day. The medication is prescribed for the sin-sick soul, but the hale and the hearty can take it with absolutely no side effect. It is incredibly easy to obtain. You can ask for it anywhere. And even if you do not find it, it will always find you. It comes directly from the heart of God. There's not a Sunday that goes by that we don't say the word. It's often packaged in the ordinary and in the mundane. And it's particularly efficacious if you stand at the end of your rope. It goes by the name of grace, unmerited gift, unsolicited love, unexpected surprise, unearned reprieve. And if you ever forget the name, as is the case with just about every other medication, how many times do you go to the doctor and they say, list all your medications and all you can remember is aspirin? Remember this, you can always hum the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Now what's the next phrase there that saved a what? A wretch like me. Do you know what the hymn euphemizers are getting ready to do? Take away the word wretch. And I don't know what they're going to put in place of it. I see wretches everywhere, don't you? They seem to be multiplying. Let's keep it in there. The most amazing thing about grace is that it can appear in the most unlikely places, among the most unworthy human beings, and within the most unseemly situations. To wit, our Old Testament lesson. The protagonist of this multi-dimensional episode in the second book of Samuel is David, the exemplary king of Israel, the gold standard for biblical leadership, the stalwart of monotheistic faith, the paradigm of a united kingdom, and the progenitor of a royal lineage that culminates with the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you read Scripture with an inquiring eye, you may be surprised at such honorific titles that have been accorded this man over the centuries. Here's a man who was just as good as gold, but you know that's only part of the story. Human being that he was, he also missed the mark in such a way that I'm surprised he ever made the list of biblical champions. We're told by the chronicler in another translation of Scripture that one warm moonlight evening, the king strolled on the roof of his palace and his eye caught a sight on a neighboring rooftop that caused him to take notice. He spots a young woman bathing herself, and to put it mildly, he is smitten by her beauty. While entitled by his rank, his power, his position, David seeks her out. He learns that her name is Bathsheba. He sends for her. He directs her to his chamber, his bedroom, and lust wins the day. We read in Scripture, he lays with her. Some weeks later, she sends word to the king that she's pregnant, and this sordid plot begins to thicken. 
Well, you know, so far in our contemporary culture, at least, we've normalized lascivious behavior that only a few might look askance at David's transgression. So what, we might say. Happens all the time. Everybody does it. No big deal. But listen up. Go further. Bathsheba turns out to be a married woman, and her husband, Uriah, is a fierce and, and loyal fighter within Israel's great army. And now this Uriah the Hittite becomes the last person on earth that David wishes to encounter. He's got to do something about this scandal that's about to emerge. What does he try to do? He tries to get old Uriah back into his house so that he can lay with his wife Bathsheba. Well, rather than deal with a scandal that could destroy his leadership in one fell swoop, the king commits one skullduggerous act after another. He contrives a scheme to eliminate Uriah and does so by seeing to it that his soldier, his beloved soldier, is sent to the front and center position on a battle line, a place where the prospect of survival is next to nothing. And this great fighter is killed as soon as he draws his sword. Well, David must have breathed a great sigh of relief that the threat of scandal is eliminated and that he can go back to business as usual. He grabs the spoils. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. And all is hunky-dory from henceforth and forevermore, or so he thinks. I'm particularly fascinated by the king's rationalizations. You know what rationalization is? It's imputing, it's imputing good motive to bad behavior. Listen to it. When he receives the news about Uriah's death from a messenger, David says to the messenger, Oh, I see. Well, now you go tell the troop commander not to worry. Say to him, Now don't you trouble yourself over this. War kills, sometimes one, sometimes another. You never know who's next. Now here is a moral reprobate if ever there was one one who's walking with abandon down that primrose path that leads to perdition. Reason, logic, would tell us that David is doomed. He's a lost soul with no hope of redemption whatsoever. And yet, look what happens in the story. Now, you're going to get two parts of the story, one next week, one this week. So some of the details we'll save for next week. Oh, but they're skullduggerous. There's an old preacher in Atlanta who appears on Sunday morning TV. I love to watch his antics. I don't recommend him. Sometimes listen to him say, he says, now you won't listen to this, you listen to this, and he wags his finger and he wags his head, and he gets to the point. I can just hear him now saying, look at Nathan the prophet, the prophet of God. He comes up to David the king and he confronts him with this flagrant disregard of the commandments. And suddenly, denial shatters. The rationalizations lose their ability to keep truth at bay. David takes in the gravity of his sin, and he repents with a lamentation that says everything that needs to be said. You know, those of you who are graduates of Sunday school from way back when, that King David is said to be the author of the Songs of Israel, the 150 psalms that we use in Christian worship every day of the year. Scholars debate and deny his authorship, 
but I'll just bet you he had something to do with Psalm 51, the one that we use so well on days like Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. You know it well from the prayer book. You know its recital on those days. You say it probably with much passion as King David said it. Have mercy on me, O God, after thy great goodness. According to the multitude of thy mercies, do away my offenses. Wash me thoroughly from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my faults and my sin is ever before me. Is that not as strong as some kind of Italian balsamic vinegar? Listen to it in a more contemporary frame. David says, or David allegedly says in the psalm, O generous one who is loved, O God, give me grace. You who are huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt, and now get this phrase, soak out my sins in your divine laundry. Ooh, I know how bad I've been. My transgressions are staring me down. You're the one I violated, and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I'll accept it. I've been out of step with you for a long time. I've been in the wrong since I was born. I know now what you're after, and it's truth from the inside out. So enter me, O oh God. Conceive a new life within me, a life that is full of your truth. Now, why is he concentrating on truth? Because the truth will set us free. Well, God did as requested. God's response is not to strike down his beloved servant for his outrageous behavior, but instead to shower him with, of all things on the face of the earth, mercy, acceptance, love, approbation, strength to carry on. Now, the sin here is real. David acknowledges it, laments it, asks that God soak it out in some kind of divine laundry. We're not looking at transgression with rose-colored glasses. We don't do that. We're standing on a deeper truth, however, here, one that highlights mercy, even when it's justice that's being called forth. As I age, I think I'm becoming somewhat of a liturgical troglodyte, a dinosaur. I love to go to the 730 right one service because it has words that really shake me to the core. Oh, we love this, love this word. I love this word. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And we usually say it in the liturgy, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Why don't we do it like this? We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but, oh, look at that conjunction, but thou art the same whose property is always, not sometimes, but always to have mercy. Now, David exemplifies that truth. He lives it out. God is always merciful, despite the manifold ways that we miss the mark, even with a sin as grievous as that of the king's. Well, it's almost too good to be true. We live in a culture wherein we practice retributive justice. If you break the law, be it the state law, the federal law, the natural law, or God's law, you're going to pay for it. And depending on the size of the crime, you may have to pay for it big time. Tit for tat is our motto, quid pro quo, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Now, that's the way we human beings work when it comes to transgression. But it's not the way that God appears to be working things out. God uses restorative justice. He loves and accepts and forgives and graces the transgressor in such a way that we say, what in the world is he up to? The poor soul is transformed by the love of God. The poor soul starts doing the very same thing in his relationship with others. Suddenly, David is blessed, and he then becomes a blessing to others. That's the key to the Old Testament, blessed to be a blessing. David deserved to have had the book thrown at him for what he had done to Uriah and Bathsheba. And yet, you know, in the narrative, we don't read of any flying books. God ends up blessing him. David blesses others. Take a dose of this kind of grace. It really does allow us to see God's hand at work in that which is unacceptable, in those who are unworthy according to our standards, in situations that are unseemly and indecorous. I looked up the word unseemly. I was close to the mark here. Unseemly means not congruent with established standards of good form and good taste. I thought, well, that's an Episcopalian word if I've ever heard one in my life. After my mother's death, I helped dissolve her home and her possession. I was chosen by my siblings to deal with her books. And one of them jumped out at me. It hurled itself into my own collection. I still read it. It's called Living Prayer by a Dominican monk whose name is Simon Tugwell. And it picked up on a biblical theme that was so important to me that I used it in my dissertation. That theme of how God never, ever, ever calls those who are fit. God always fits those whom he calls. Tugwell phrased it in another way. He said, by the grace made so abundantly available through the cross of Jesus Christ, God can make a dancer out of the most atrocious partner. Oh, that's gospel news. That's redemption. That's God's job description, redeeming the time, bringing good out of evil, life out of death, light out of darkness, and joy out of suffering. I'll end with this notion. We've been doing a lot on Sunday evenings around here in good form. Perhaps on one of our Sunday evening expressions of differing forms of worship on Spring Street, we should add another dimension to the potpourri of liturgical offerings. In addition to bluegrass masses, contemplative meditations, and Camp Mitchell hootenannies, we should be adding liturgical dance. It's almost gone out of fashion. It was big back in the 60s and 70s. Can't you imagine us dancing down the aisle to the tune of amazing grace that saved a wretch like me? The point is we've got to remember and never, ever forget that God can make a dancer out of the most atrocious partner, that God never calls those who are fit. God always fits those whom God calls. All we have to do is to take a good look at King David and marvel at how God is doing for him and for us what we could never do for ourselves. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.